reported live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. Welcome to episode 40 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to our channels on YouTube and SoundCloud. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at prlawpodcast.com. Club, Ewan, we've made it to episode 40. I can't believe it, but uh, how are you doing as lockdown marches on there uh, in Eastern Canada? Oh, it, well, can we even say it marches? It's not really marching. It's, it's lingering. Crawling. Yeah. It's it's like a sloth yeah, it's sort lingering. of, you know, trying to, yeah, it, it, it's not moving with any with any pace or, or urgency. Um, yeah, no, no, we're, we're, we're locked down, man. We're, um, we're, we're going to be like this for, for a while yet. You know, we, uh, parts of Kowloon have been, uh, sort of sealed off for the first time this has happened in Hong Kong. Uh, there's a, a large sort of area over there where people cannot leave, leave their apartments or return because there's been a bit of a spread. And again, we're talking double digits, you know, not thousands or anything. Um, but I mean, you know, in Hong Kong, people live so closely together. It's very dense. And so uh, they're going to, to extremes to try and to try and keep uh, keep the virus from spreading. But I think, you know, one of the big events last week, Ewan, was the uh, inauguration of a, of a new U.S. president, number 46. Did you catch that ceremony? I, I did. It was interesting. I was looking at my, my Twitter feed that day, and there were a number of lawyers chiming in saying, well, so I've kind of docketed a 0.2 in terms of <laughs> 0.2 of an hour over the course <laughs> of the day. How about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I watched, I watched the whole thing. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people did from, from cover to cover. It was, um, yeah, it was something else. Yeah. And I'm always interested in these just because there is a PR angle to them, right? Like Joe Biden gave a, a speech. Uh, it's a speech that Chris Wallace at Fox news said he felt was the best he'd ever heard at uh, inauguration. And of course he's been blasted by the conservative side uh, in the United States for making those comments. But, but I thought it was a, a very good speech. I thought he was really on point um, and, and he did a good job. And I'm actually going to put a, a link in the show notes about uh, an article by James Fallows from, from the Atlantic, who's somebody that I really admire. I think he does a great job and he's a former presidential speech writer uh, for Jimmy Carter, but he, he kind of pulled apart the, the Biden speech and talked about why it was so good. Uh, and it really sort of revolved around his, his ability to empathize. And, and that's something obviously the, the, the previous president was unable to do. <laughs> well, and, and it still had that sort of folksy uncle Joe thing going on for it. Right. Even though, yeah. you know, it was scripted, um, you, you know, the stage has been set. This is, this is one of the speeches that, um, he will be remembered for. And yet he, he still sort of found a way to kind of inject that sort of folksy Joe Biden thing that people, I guess, either love or hate, depending on where you fall on it. Yeah. And then the other item from uh, last week, Larry King passed away. Um, I mean, I think we, we knew that was coming uh, based on his age. I think he was 87, if that's correct. 
Um, but still, I mean, that's somebody who I thought was quite, quite old when I was young and he was on TV. Um, and so he had a, he had a long life and he was obviously very, very, very well known, uh, in journalism circles. Yeah. Well, and, and Hank Aaron died as well. well Hank Aaron right? too. I mean, yeah. The, the man who, who, who crushed Babe Ruth's home run title. Um, yeah, I mean, pretty remarkable story there. I saw some really incredible obits um the washington post in particular did a did a, a bang up one uh and a few other really really interesting ones talking about the history of the league and you know the state of major league baseball when uh, when when hank aaron first got his start yeah it's uh it's sad you know I, I i did see one article that linked to a video about you know hank aaron's uh 715th home run which which broke babe Ruth's record um, and it's quite an amazing call. I think I should maybe put put a link in on the show notes for this as well because it does show he hit the home run in in Atlanta. And um, you know the 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 broadcaster Vince Gully, you know, remarked, and I'm paraphrasing, that this is an an amazing achievement, and that there is a standing ovation for a black man in the Deep South, uh, you know, for breaking a, a record of a beloved hero and. Um, how it was such a poignant moment, uh, you know, really for the United States. It was it's quite a powerful call. Yeah, I, I actually saw it as well. I had never seen it before, but it, it was um, it was doing the rounds along with a lot of the other stuff on on him over the last few days. Um, you're right. It is. It's a pretty remarkable call. And the fact that his his family is there when he lands at home plate. Um, it was really, really cool. This is a nice segue, uh, Ewan, because uh, we're going to talk a little bit of baseball on the other side. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Okay, what have we got, Ewan? Baseball related. Yeah, it is actually. So I wanted to talk about Jared Porter. Uh, and for those who may not know who he is, Jared Porter, well, Jared Porter was the general manager for the New York Mets. Uh, he was hired as the GM uh, just in December. So, I mean, really wasn't there for, for very long. He was fired on Tuesday uh, after it was discovered that he had sent a number of uh, sexually explicit texts, unsolicited, I might add, mm. to a female reporter uh, back in 2016. Now, this reporter, who who still remains anonymous, um, was a foreign correspondent. She moved to the United States to cover Major League Baseball. Um, and Cam, we're not just talking about one or two unsolicited messages. Porter sent over 60 Mm. And that's six zero unanswered messages, um, including seven photos, and one of which was, a, you know, a, a lewd photo of an erect penis. Now, the the two of them, they initially met in an elevator at Yankee Stadium back in 2016. And this was literally the only time that the two had ever spoken. They wow. exchanged contact information. And then later that afternoon, Porter began texting the reporter and asking her to go for a drink. She declined, but eventually agreed to meet him the next day, believing that, you know, this would be a good opportunity from a professional perspective. Um, and then that quickly prompted Porter to send 
a selfie, several messages, um, including an image of him sitting on a bed with a, you know, a, a bulge in the groin area, presumably of himself. So again, the two never met Cam outside of this very, very brief encounter in, in an elevator. And here's where things get kind of interesting. Um, so the reporter initially spoke to ESPN about the story in 2017, and she asked that ESPN not report on it because she feared backlash in her home country and believed that it would destroy her career. Well, she's since left the country, the United States, that is, and she's left journalism, and she wanted to report the story. And this was ultimately what she told ESPN. This is the quote, Cam. She said, my number one motivation is I want to prevent this from happening to someone else. Obviously, he's in a much greater position of power. I want to prevent that from happening again. The other thing is, I never really got the notion that he was truly sorry, end quote. Um, So, you know, after learning about Porter's position as, as GM of the Mets, she wanted the story to get out there to to make sure that other women didn't didn't have to endure the same thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's definitely an, an interesting case. And you're right. I think that wrinkle of her telling ESPN in 2016 and then not really reporting it till 2021 makes this uh, a, a little bit different from the traditional kind of Me Too cases. Um, I do wonder why she told ESPN in 2016, though. I don't know what the motivation was there if she didn't want the story to come out. I don't know if 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 you've heard anything around that, Ewan. And I, and I haven't. It's a great question. And actually, it was as I understand, um, she spoke with ESPN in 2017. the The exchanges with Porter occurred in 2016. So there was even a gap between the the, the exchange of these texts and when she ultimately spoke to ESPN. So yeah, as to why you know, ESPN sat on it for that long, or she asked ESPN to sit on it for that long. That was the explanation that she provided was, you know, she was, she was scared of reprisal. And, you know, I've since read a number of, of stories around this and sort of researching the story for, for the show cam. And, you know, obviously this isn't uncommon for women to have Mm -hmm. to endure in these situations. And her reaction is all too common where they do sit quiet. They don't say anything. Um, and it could be years before, um, you know, it could be a triggering event or they see that individual in the public eye. And that is what sort of motivates them to, to finally come forward and, and, and tell their story. Mm-hmm. Um, in any event, I, you know, I was sort of curious to get your take on this cam because the Mets response. So, you know, when the story finally broke, the initial response came, this was Monday evening, and it came from the president of the uh, the New York Mets, Sandy Alderson. And I'll read you the, read you the sure. quote. This is what Anderson had to say, or Alderson, excuse me. I have spoken directly with Jared Porter regarding events that took place in 2016, of which we were made aware tonight for the first time. Jared has acknowledged to me his serious error in judgment has taken responsibility for his conduct, has expressed remorse, and has previously apologized for his actions. The Mets take these matters seriously, expect professional and ethical behavior from all of our employees, and certainly do not condone the conduct described in your story. We will follow up as we review the facts regarding this serious issue. So what are your thoughts, Cam, on the uh, on the response? Well, I think I mean, first of all, and again, I haven't I haven't gone deeply into this at all, but I, I think it's quite clear, especially now that when there are 
accusations like this, uh, there should be you know a, a quick investigation to determine if they're if they are true, um, or even you know possibly true, and and action should be taken quickly. And we've talked about that on this show because you're you're, you're exposing your your brand or your product or your corporate profile to to further scrutiny and criticism. Um, if you don't take action, because I think the, the, the precedent has kind of been set with, with this since Harvey Weinstein and since the, the Me Too movement started. Now, I'm not conflating this with Harvey Weinstein. I think these are two very different, different cases. Um, but I think it, it does behoove companies now to, to act quickly. And I think they, they probably did what I would have recommended. Um, however, it, the, the interesting part here is I really do think that five years ago, uh, he would probably still have his job. Um, and then the reasons being, this is a guess. I'm not saying that he should or shouldn't have it, but, but I think especially in a sports organization, um, I think there was in, in sports, I think probably a a bit of a higher tolerance uh, for this kind of thing. Again, that's my own personal opinion. Uh, and we've talked about sports stories, um, before you and on this show as well, but also that because it was, it was many years ago. Um, and, and they did say that he had apologized and as far as we know, this is the only case, although others may may come forward. So it seems like the sort of thing where you, potentially the, the business could have rallied around their new general manager if it was one case and there was a, an apology issued and, and uh, that kind of thing. But that doesn't cut it anymore. It's not good enough. And people rightly expect more uh, because if this behavior is to stop, there's going to have to be some serious consequences. And, um, and I think the, the, they, they played this out. I mean, this, the quote that you read you was, um, when there was an investigation basically saying that these allegations are serious and we're looking into them. And I think that was a good first, first response. Yeah. I think, I think as a, as an initial statement, I agree with you. I think it probably is a good, a good first response. And here's where, you know, uh, the, the follow-up and, and, you know, as you and I have chatted about, I think that there is importance and in, in that in organizations should prioritize a proper and thorough investigation um, of, of these sorts of allegations. And that, you know, too often companies are prone to knee jerk reactions and they come out and say one thing when they should have said something else. And, you know, they, they make that call before they have all of the information. Mm -hmm. So I think this is sort of, you know, a good middle ground of, yes, we understand that, that this occurred. Um, You know, Porter has acknowledged it. We're looking into it. We'll get back to you effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, What's interesting about this cam is that the follow-up statement, it didn't come a week later. It didn't come even a couple days later. It actually came first thing the following morning. And that was from Mets owner Stephen Cohen. And he tweeted out, and I'll, I'll read the tweet. We have terminated Jared Porter this morning. In my initial press conference, I spoke about the importance of integrity and I meant it. There should be zero tolerance for this type of behavior. So that was the follow-up the next morning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um I want to give a a little glimpse into what happens behind the scenes in these situations. Um, I was involved in something similar to this when one of the executives at one of the companies I worked for had been criticized for uh, basically faking his university degree. It was from a university that doesn't exist and it was fraudulent. And, uh, you know, once a reporter dug that out and contacted me as the PR person, obviously my first action is to contact this person and say, is this true? Is this 
did you do this? And that's really uncomfortable. I mean, it's really, really uncomfortable. But that's what likely happened in this case is that the the president and the owner would have sat him down and said, Jared, like, what is this? Did you send these images? Did you send these messages? And I mean, the, the president said in that first message that he did. He took responsibility and said he did. And and when that happens, I think it speeds the the investigation along much faster, um, you know, in that case. And, and maybe he said there's, there's other things too, that could potentially come out, um, that he's done. Um, but I think, you know, even if it's just this one case, Ewan, the owner looks at it and says, okay, so he did this, he made a person feel this way and he's admitting it. So what, what choice do we have? I mean, it's kind of staring you in the face there. And I mean, like I say, it could have been worse, but, but even if it's not, this is going to be something that is going to be asked about again and again and again and again throughout the season uh, and maybe beyond. And you don't want that distraction. You don't want that associated with your brand or your team. And, um, you know, this is just, uh, I, I, th- I think, you know, all guys have to understand this. This is the way it kind of has to go. It's not a matter of if you think it's fair or not. You know, I can certainly hear those arguments, but, but this is the way it is now. And, um, you know, I, I think people have to be much more careful on this sort of thing. Well, yeah, look, I mean, I think, I, I think the Mets made the right, made the right call here. And, you know, while we can talk about taking the time for a thorough investigation, I mean, I think you're also right. Look, I mean, he, he admitted that he did this, they had access to the exchanges and mm-hmm. really, I mean, you can, you know, you can, you can go to the Wolf. Uh, we'll put a link to the SPN story and, and, and our, the listeners can have a look at the, the text exchanges themselves and make their own mind. Um, but I mean, I read them, Cam, and I mean, it, yeah, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty self-explanatory. I don't know how much more evidence you would, you would need, but you know, it's typical um, of the, you know, sort of the, the Twitter verse and the pushback on, on issues like this immediately following Steve Cohen's tweet, of course, there was, you know, a whole slew of tweets that, that followed. And I thought it was interesting. Cohen actually responded to one of them, which was, you know, you would think it was some sort of high profile individual who was commenting on it. It wasn't, it was some guy who had 10 followers on Twitter who tweeted caving to cancel culture is abhorrent. Now that his life has been ruined, what is his path to redemption, Mr. Cohen? And Cohen actually chimed in and responded. And he said, I have no idea. I have an organization of 400 employees that matter more than any one individual. No action would set a poor example to the culture I'm trying to build. And that's really what it comes down to. And, you know, I think there's a lot of red herrings when you start talking about these kinds of issues. I think people are looking at the wrong thing. Um, whether or not this is cancel culture, whether or not he should be punished for something that he did four or five years ago. You know, look, from a legal perspective, the Mets are entitled to terminate the individual, to terminate Porter if they want to terminate him. And the reality is he's damaged the brand. Mm -hmm. He's damaged the brand. And why would you keep someone like that around? If, you know, when, when, when Simon Murphy was on the show cam back in, in episode 32, um, you know, Simon Murphy of Edelman's, one of the things we chatted about was this concept of tone from the top, right? You've got to set the tone from the top of the organization. How are you supposed to do that when it's out in the public eye that this is how your general manager conducts himself um, in private? 
I mean, do you, is that the person that you want running the organization, setting the tone for everyone else? Of course it's not. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there was that mentality for far too long of, you know, this, this sort of boys will be boys and it's sports. And what do you expect? Well, to your point, it's, it's not good enough anymore. And for good reason, it's not good enough anymore. Um, and you know, whether or not you call it cancel culture, whether or not it was four or five years ago, I don't think it matters. What matters is that clearly Cohen is trying to set the tone for his organization and Porter violated, um, that, that goal and he's gone. And the employer is well within its rights to do that, to say, sorry, that's it. We're, we're letting you go. You know, this is something I think people have to understand who are outside of the two um, fields that we're in, which is this is not it's not about uh, fair or adjudicating this uh, in an open and transparent way and making a decision. It's, it's not about like, how should we punish him? Should we punish him? Should we not like all of these kinds of questions? Because, you know, the, the commenter that you said on Twitter talks about basically uh, Porter being being a victim here. And in some ways he is. Yeah, he lost his job and potentially his career. But the, the question is, when you're at a company like this, you are bound to protect your company, your brand. That That's what it's all about. And it's not really about sort of how we're going to treat this one employee. Like you say, you have to set the the the, the tone from the top. It really is making sure that your brand is not tarnished or tainted in some way. And especially in, in something like baseball, where, you know, you are selling tickets, you've got to have TV deals, you know, you've got to, you need a widespread support uh, for, for your business to make sense. And so this is what you just have to do. Um, because that, that, that's everything. Your, your brand reputation, your brand's viability is absolutely everything. If you don't have that, you're, you're going to be in big trouble, you know, in terms of business. And that's just the way it is. I, it doesn't matter if people like it or not, or agree with it or not, or think it's fair or not. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. And it's just what had to happen in this case. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that's that's educational in this story, Cam, is the gray area, really. And and, and this is where it, it it's still so remarkably difficult for for women in the workforce. Right. It's it's not the obvious stuff. You go through these text exchanges, Cam, and, you know, Porter saying, hey, meet me for a drink. I'm at this hotel. Come by the hotel. That stuff is clearly of a personal and romantic nature. It it couldn't possibly Mm -hmm. be misconstrued as anything else. But there are also text messages of, hey, I'm at the stadium watching batting practice. You should come by. Well, this is think about it. This is a reporter who's trying to build a reputation, is trying to succeed in Major League Baseball. And Porter is well aware of that fact. And he's relying on it and he's preying on it for the purposes of his own personal goals. That has nothing to do with, hey, come on down and watch batting practice and this might give you a leg up over your competitors. He's using his position as leverage for his own romantic interests. And that's the stuff that's far more complicated and and far more difficult to sort of just look at and say, oh, well, hey, that's acceptable or that's unacceptable. But that's the kind of stuff that women have to deal with. And that's the kind of stuff as an employment lawyer that, you know, I'm meeting with clients. I'm faced with those sorts of scenarios of, Hey, I've been subjected to this. What can we do about that? What does this mean? Um, it's the gray area stuff that still happens all the time and is really, really, really difficult needs to be addressed. 
You mentioned that he had sent 60 messages and that she didn't uh, respond. And this follows one brief encounter in an elevator. Um, you know, what's interesting, you went like, like if anybody sent 60 messages to somebody else without responses, it doesn't matter if it's relationship, uh, nature or, or pursuit or, or anything. It's, it's harassment, <laughs> you know, like it's just, you shouldn't do that to anyone, uh, at any time it goes over the line and it shows he, he probably has some boundary issues that he needs to work out. Well, yeah, and that's just it. And I mean, at, at the end of it, I mean, this reporter talks about in her interview with with ESPN where she had someone English was a second language into her own admission. She said, you know, it, it's difficult for me to write in English. And she had someone help her draft a very, very brief response saying, you know, hey, this is inappropriate. Please stop. And then, of course, at that point, Porter says, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'm so sorry. I apologize. I apologize. Um as if that somehow eradicates the 62 prior messages and images that were that were sent unanswered. I mean, it, it doesn't. But you've got to think about what is the mindset of an individual? And is that sort of is that sort of reflective of this individual? Is this somehow reflective of the profession that he's in or the culture that he's in um, that he would think even for a moment that that would somehow be acceptable behavior, right? I mean, that's the thing that I find really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I digress a bit here. I like, I do, this does amaze me. Like I can't, I can't imagine sending photos to, you know, someone I hardly know of, even someone I know very well, like my wife, you know, a a lot of times the photos that, that come up in these situations, like it just, it blows my mind. I don't understand the thinking I don't understand why guys think that's going to help them out. I mean, it must with some women that are they're chasing because otherwise they wouldn't do it, I would think. But it just it strikes me as so bizarre because some of these things have just never crossed my mind. And I mean, I, I'm certainly not not claiming to be a saint. I've made my own mistakes, obviously. But but this is not one of them. <laughs> I'm happy to say. Right. Well, you know, I know we got to move on. So I, mm-hmm. one last point I wanted to make on this cam is the vetting process, right? That employers really need to make sure they do their due diligence in vetting high profile and high ranking employees, particularly individuals who are going to be the face of your organization, of your business, of your corporation, what have you. Um, That vetting process is crucial. Now, was that done here? I I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, Is this something that they could have learned before they'd hired him? Probably not. Um, but I don't think it changes the fact that employers have to be very, very diligent um, before they make offers of employment to individuals like this. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. I want to go back to the inauguration, Ewan, uh, this week to talk a little bit about Amanda Gorman, who basically made a name mm-hmm. for herself by uh, writing and performing a poem uh, at the inaugural 
uh, this week. And she's actually the first youth poet laureate in the United States. She studies at Harvard. Um, and she was asked in December uh, to, to perform this or, or to write a poem uh, and then share it during uh, the inauguration. Uh, I'm going to play, uh, you know, just a quick snippet. This is from sort of the middle uh, of her poem and gives you a taste of, of what she sounded like uh, if you didn't actually catch the poem. While once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy. Ewan, did you catch the poem uh, on Inauguration Day? And, you know, what did, what did you think? I did. I did. And what, what I found so amazing was I loved the cadence of her speech, Cam. I absolutely loved it. The way that y- you really felt like she was digging in to every word. And what I found so incredible was that after the fact, when I, I did probably what millions of other people um, did that had never heard of her was I immediately started looking her up was who is this person? Um, What's the backstory? And when I found out that she had speech issues, much the way that Mm -hmm. Biden had speech issues, I found that so remarkable because again, that was one of the things that really struck me was just the power of her cadence um, and the the efficiency for which she spoke, it was really it was really quite remarkable. Yeah, I, I agree. And you're right. She did reveal later that she had uh, a speech impediment uh, earlier in life, even up until just a couple of years ago. Uh, it plagued her when she was speaking. And I mean, obviously, she, she was praised a lot. I think anyone who, who listened to it can say, yeah, that that's good, that she sounded great and it was touching. But 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 what made it good? I mean, I think this is something I kind of wanted to go into a bit today because she was able to express something in a compelling way just using words. And this is something that we have to do in communications all the time. Um, And how we put these words together and how we deliver them can really have a big impact on what we're trying to say or what we're trying to promote or who we're trying to protect um, and and whatever it might be. And, you know, when she delivered this poem, it actually did remind me of um, Barack Obama's speech at the 04 Democratic Convention. Um, you know, that was I, I had seen him on that stage. And that was when he really sort of shot to stardom when he talked about red states uh, and blue states uh, coming together for the United States and so on and so forth. And, you know, I was blown away then, uh, you know, just like Gorman's poem sort of had an impact uh, this time around. It was almost uh, universally praised. So I think, yeah, there are some lessons in here for communicators, Ewan. And and you mentioned her her cadence. I I think that's really, that's good, Ewan. You really picked up on that because that's going to be a point uh, I want to bring up here. But first off, um, I just want to say, number one, no props 
I mean, when, when speaking publicly, I, I think this goes for everybody, not just communicators. We do think of ways to entertain using either PowerPoints or photos or video or, you know, these other tools to hold one's attention because we fear you know, our audience being bored. Uh, We fear boring them. Um, You know, we fear not being able to hold their attention. Uh, And so, you know, oftentimes we do bring in some of these, these other tools, but I think, you know, Gorman here, I think really showed how powerful words can be when they're by themselves. You know what? And I used to bring this up, you know, when I worked at the exchange is that sometimes when you want to get a, a compelling point across, it's better not to have a PowerPoint because if you have a PowerPoint, people look at the PowerPoint, they're not looking at you and they're not taking in everything you're saying because they're looking at something else. They're reading something else. They're examining something else. Um, and, and ultimately if it is an important message, you want them looking at you. They want you want your audience to see how you're delivering it. If you're serious, are you emotional? Are you sending other signals through body language? You know, that, that, that helps to enhance your message. Uh, you know, that, that that's important. Um, and I thought, you know, Gorman did a, a great job of that. Yeah. You remind actually, you're reminding me something, Cam, uh, uh, a few months ago, I listened to, you know, as lawyers, we have to do a lot of these sort of continuing education, CPD things to sort of keep up on on particular issues in, in the law. And some of them are really, really wonderful and, and educational. And in this particular talk, it was a judge speaking on, hey, lawyers stepping into my courtroom, let me give you some pointers. Here are a few tips. And one of them, one of the tips that actually ha- has stuck with me was one that was provided to him by his wife, who happens to be a, a PR and communications person. And he says, this is something I think about when lawyers step into my courtroom. It's something my wife tells me all the time. Very, very three, three quick points. Be brief, be bold, be gone. Mm-hmm. And when I and and Gorbin speaking, it, it really it, it sort of it struck that tone, right? It's brief, it's bold, you're gone and you're left wanting more and you're left thinking about it and, and running over what was said in your head. Um, those three sort of fundamental tenets should always be there in an effective speaker. Yep. I, I think. I agree. And she showed sort of the power that words can have on their own. Um, and I think that's encouraging, but it's also scary because, you know, it shows that with the right words that we can stir something in people, but it's scary because it's not easy to do, obviously. And, um, you know, that goes to, to, to Gorman's talent. Um, she was interviewed uh, later in the day on CNN. Uh, Anderson Cooper talked to her and they had talked about you know some of the images from the uh, January sixth insurrection in Washington D.C. and he was asking her, you know, are, did these images you know affect you and did this sort of spur you to write about these issues and and how did those images affect you? And I thought her her response uh, was great. I'm a poet, so often I don't work in images, I work in words and text. And so what I was actually doing is, while keeping my mental sanity, looking through the tweets and the messages and the articles and seeing what stood out. And there's a line in the poem that you might have heard, which is, we've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it. And I got that actually from looking through a few tweets and a lot of people being like, wow, this is what happens when people don't want to share the country with the rest of us. And so I took that, which often became a meme in on Twitter, and I put that in the poem. 
I love that. She's a poet. She works in words, not images. I think it's it's just excellent. Um, I tend to be kind of the same way, and I think that's why I really, really enjoyed you know her answer to that question. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ewan. No, no, I, I go. I just agree. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the second point is is the one that that you brought up, Ewan. Uh, you talked about her cadence, and and I think she was. You know, you can write a poem, um, but when you deliver the poem, it could still fall flat uh, because the the way that you read a poem or a speech or anything, um, how you do that is really important. It's not just an afterthought. It can make or break uh, what, what you're performing. Um, and, you know, any any speech coach would say uh, sort of as a basic lesson to, to vary your speed, incorporate pauses for effect, you know, speed up where necessary, slow down when you really want, you know, a point to sit in when you want your audience to think about something. And I thought she, she did this quite well. So, um, you know, Gorman was able to incorporate sort of faster speech when she was going through ideas like this. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. You can see she's going quite quickly, but just after that part. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. Very different ways of reading. And those two clips were actually back to back. They're one sort of clip. Um, but in the first part, she is trying to gather momentum. Uh, you know, she's making multiple points quickly uh, to, to make a point uh, and then slow down when, when she really wanted to emphasize something. And uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ewan, because that definitely stood out to me as well. Yeah. So, I mean, what what do you do in situations, Cam, where you're working with a client and you know they have to make some sort of presentation because, of course, you know, as much as the PR people would like to be the ones who not only write the message but deliver the message, more often than not, that's that's not really practical. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what is your guidance to someone who perhaps is a nervous speaker or um, is not particularly comfortable getting up in front of the microphone and delivering that message, even if it is uh, a well-written message by someone someone else, such as yourself. Well, this happens all the time. Uh, I think, you know, in any company, I mean, usually your executives or your CEO or your chairman, they're appointed or elected um, sort of based on their, their business capability or their expertise uh, in their sector. Um, you know, usually speaking, it might be uh, a criteria, but it's not at the top. And so in all of the companies that I've, I've worked in or worked with, we have held training for, for executives along these lines because it is important. It's really important. Um, you know, when I was at the MTR, which is the subway network in Hong Kong, we had a chief executive who was very charismatic uh, and he was able to go out there and talk and smile and he was gregarious and he was excellent for, for, you know, getting the company's message out there, it makes such a big difference into how your company is perceived to, to, to be able to speak that way. So really, I mean, I would look towards getting the necessary training. I, I don't think it's something that needs to be 
overwhelming, um, you know, or too difficult, but it does require some help. And I think, you know, getting somebody to sort of walk you through it, uh, teach you a bit about it, and then just practice, you know, try it over and over again. And uh, that's really the only way to kind of get better at it. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I mean, in, in, in the lawyer world, it's it's much the same, right? It's how do you get comfortable um, being in court, speaking in front of a judge, I'll go mm-hmm. to court and speak in front of judges. I mean, that's there, there is no substitute for practical experience, right? Get out there, put yourself in those uncomfortable positions. It's really the only way to learn. Mm-hmm. Right on. The, uh, third thing I wanted to bring up Ewan is, uh, research. So, I mean, this poem sounds amazing, obviously, and I think sometimes people think this sort of came off the top of her head or she saw something on TV like that that, that insurrection uh, or she was reading Twitter, which she alluded to earlier, uh, and then just sort of put this all together. But it's more complicated than that. And research, I think, anytime you're delivering a speech is something that is quite important, even if it doesn't seem like Um, It should be. And so, again, from the interview with Anderson Cooper on CNN, uh, she talks about this. Well, you know, I did a lot of research ever since I found out in late December that I was going to be the inaugural poet. So that was making sure I read all of the previous inaugural poems, um, really doing a deep literature dive of other orators who I look up to, whether it be Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and how they speak to a nation that can feel very divided. And I was around halfway through that process and kind of that research when um, the January 6th insurrection happened at the Capitol. And I'm not going to say that that completely, you know, derailed the poem because I was not surprised at what had happened. I had seen the signs and the symptoms for a while, and I was not trying to turn a blind eye to that. But what it did is it energized me even more to believe that much more firmly in a message of hope and unity and healing. I felt like that was the type of poem that I needed to write, and it was the type of poem that the country and the world needed to hear. Now, the last uh, item I want to mention, Ewan, is the hardest one, and it's confidence. And it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to teach. Um, It's something that a person develops over time. And clearly, I mean, Amanda had a speech impediment, as we discussed, and she clearly got past that. And her confidence really shine through uh, when she was up uh, on the podium and delivering uh, her poem. And, you know, I think... And we talk about this a lot, Ewan, when a company is making a statement about something, that the feeling, the emotions, you have to match the moment. You have to indicate to your audience that you understand and that you empathize and that you connect. And I thought she was absolutely excellent uh, at this. And this is probably the most important part. Here's how she closed the poem. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the windswept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake rimmed cities of the midwestern states. We will rise from the sun baked south. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover in every known 
nook of our nation in every corner called our country. Our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. So again, this this happened, um, you know, after the the January 6th insurrection, Um, you know, the country obviously uh, has some trauma over that and, you know, even over the last four years for for many uh, and and concern and the, the, the country was in a vulnerable state. Uh, and looking for reconciliation. Uh, and I think, you know, the way that she wrote it and the way she performed that poem really connected. I think she was able to put words to what people are feeling. Uh, and that's a, a real skill um, and something quite, quite special. And I think these are, these are the reasons why uh, she had such a, a, a really positive impact and, and created such a stirring poem. Yeah, completely agree. Rightly so. Deserving of all the accolades. It was moving. Even listening to it again, Cam, as you played it back, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's truly remarkable. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PRN Law Podcast. Okay, Ewan, what do you got? Well, Cam, I, uh, I don't know if you caught this. Today, the uh, the New York Times interview with Fauci, Doctor Fauci, oh, really? on what working on. Yeah, it's an interview they they had him for an hour um, to ask him about what working for Trump was really like. So, from denialism to death threats, Doctor Anthony Fauci describes a fraught year as an advisor to President Donald J. Trump on the COVID nineteen pandemic. And you know what what's so interesting about this interview for me, Cam? is how despite the headline and a clear attempt to almost make it sound salacious, there is nothing about this interview that is even remotely <laughs> salacious. Um, if anything, it's, it's, it might even be considered a bit drab aside from, yes, the, the reality that Dr. Fauci, his family faced death threats he had a, an envelope full of a, a powder that showed up mm. at his office and, you know, people had to come in with hazmat suits to determine whether it was, you know, a harmful substance. Turned out it wasn't. But aside from that, Cam, what's really interesting is just how much Dr. Fauci kept his cool through this entire mm-hmm. process. And, you know, when people were thinking, well, what happened to Fauci? Did he disappear? Did he get fired? Um, and he talks very poignantly about this, that his job is to be honest, mm-hmm. truthful, transparent. That is his role. And he is not prepared to compromise in that regard at all, full stop. And that led him to effectively keep quiet in mm-hmm. many ways. Almost, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, Cam. He sort of got to a place where he could not in good conscience get up and be supportive of the message that the administration was conveying. And the reality was quickly becoming that every time he did speak, he was contradicting the administration. And then the administration, you know, behind closed doors would kind of lean into him and say, you can't say this, you can't say this. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, just, just the dedication of this man to maintaining the message 
maintaining the message, staying true to his to his beliefs, true to his education, true to his background, true to science and true to facts, regardless of the obstacles that he faced along the way. So is it worth your time? Yes. Is it uh, as salacious um, as the, you know, the, the, the headline might suggest? No, not at all. On the contrary, it's exactly what you would probably expect Dr. Fauci to say right down to his, his closing remark where, you know, the reporter is clearly trying to bait him into saying that Donald Trump is responsible for, um, you know, all the COVID deaths. And he says, look, you know, I, I, I don't have any scientific evidence to confirm or deny one way or the other mm-hmm. that he is directly responsible. So I'm not going to touch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I hope one of the things that we get back uh, in the future is, you know, an understanding of who the messenger is and who the newsmaker is. And, um, you know, uh, Fauci was, like you said, he's there to tell the truth and to share his expertise. Um, and if he says wear a mask and people get angry about that, it's not really Fauci pushing masks. He's saying this is what his years of experience and training have taught him. Uh, and for some reason, you know, a lot of people have discounted that, you know, on the same token, I mentioned earlier about uh, Chris Wallace on Fox News saying he enjoyed Joe Biden's speech. I mean, he has been vilified across the right wing press for this. And um, I, I find that so bizarre because he, like he's not saying he likes Joe Biden. He's saying it was a good speech. And, you know, these days, that's not something that you can say in certain circles. And I think this does affect kind of both sides to some degree. Um, but we have to kind of open our minds a little bit more uh, and not be so rah-rah for our home team. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good recommendation, Ewan. Also, Ewan mentioned today in his answer. He means Sunday. Or, uh, yeah, Sunday, the day he's uh, recording. It's Monday morning here in Hong Kong. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I always get, you know. Yeah. No matter how long, I mean, how many years have we been speaking frequently, Cam, from uh, from Hong Kong and Toronto, even long before this podcast? But yeah, never wow. can really get over the idea of you're 13 hours ahead of me in the future. Yeah, um, and someone uh, could be listening to this in June of this year, so today won't be much to them. That's right. So. Um, anyway, uh, the one thing I wanted to mention quickly, uh, Larry King. Uh, so he obviously passed away this week. Uh, he was, uh, an icon of broadcasting. Scott has started radio just like I did. I love radio the most to this day, uh, which is something I share with Larry King. Um, I actually don't want to recommend any of the articles on his life since he's passed away, but there was one article written about his life while he was very much alive in 2015 uh, by Mark uh, Leibovitz, uh, who also wrote uh, This Town, which is a book that I thoroughly enjoyed about Washington, D.C., and basically how you know everyone socializes and is part of the same same crew there. Uh, but this, this is called uh, Larry King is preparing for his final cancellation. And it's an absolutely superb article about his life, his thoughts, sort of his quirks. Uh, you know, Leibowitz spent quite a bit of time uh, with King uh, in, in putting this article together. And I think it's an absolute gem. It's one that I've saved. And uh, I definitely, if, if you're interested in King or you want to take a look back, you know, now that he's passed away, this is an absolutely excellent article. Great. Cool. I, I saw 
Bill Maher had a had a an interesting tweet about Larry King as well, basically thanking him for for giving him sort of his his first big big start back. What did he say? And he how did he describe it back when CNN was television for smart people? Yeah, I saw some tweet like that. He was like, "I love you, Larry King." You know, but at the same time, I wish your network was as smart as it used to be. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I had a, a problem too with CNN as I was watching the inauguration, only because they were gushing so much over the Bidens and the day, and I thought this is um, this is not the way they would have talked with Trump or probably any other Republican candidate. Uh, I, I seem to notice that stuff a lot more now uh, because I put myself in the other other side's shoes and go, if I'm a Trump supporter, how would I feel about this? Um, and oftentimes I do find that CNN's gone quite, quite far in one direction. But anyway, that's a discussion for another day, Ewan. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we wrap this one up? That's it, my friend. That's it. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us uh, again. We had a packed show today, all kinds of stuff in there. Uh, so don't don't miss a show in the future either. You can subscribe uh, in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And our newsletter, of course, prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.